Eric Godsey describes himself as a student of the psyche, myths, and dreams. He hosts the podcast, The Myths That Shape Us. He is a coach with Aubrey Marcus's Fit for Service Mastermind, and he has a masterful ability to communicate the human experience via words and stories. Using cognitive, evolutionary, and Jungian psychology, Eric helps people discover, articulate, and change the stories that rule their lives. There is so much more I can say about Eric, but I just want to dive into this fascinating conversation. So without further ado, today's episode with Eric Godsey. Eric Gotzi, I am stoked to have you on the show today. I've been following your journey for a few years now. Uh, I think I initially heard you, your journey of wrapping burritos mindfully at Chipotle yeah. and how that was a you know key and cool part of your journey to where yeah. you are now. And this interview will not be linear because my brain, my brain doesn't always work that way, but we're going to kind of hop around. Cool. And I... I kind of wanted to just start right into the deep end. Um, Mm -hmm. You recently got back from a journey with ayahuasca and you have a brilliant um, recollection of your experience. And one of the concepts you talked about in your experience really resonated with me. And it's something that I've felt and experienced and grapple with my whole life, which is this feeling of guilt Yeah, and guilt for like the life you have, the opportunities you've had. And I would just love to hear how long you've dealt with that and kind of what your process has been, you know, pre-plant medicine, but also with it in terms of like how you've kind of dealt with that. Yeah. So one of the major lessons that ayahuasca continues to bring me to is um, I have felt guilty for how easy life has come to me since I can remember being conscious. Um. And it's one of those things where to really articulate it feels like I'm creating a resume bragging about myself. And so it feels uncomfortable to even fully articulate the feeling. But the core of it is um, I didn't seem to incur any um, fracturing trauma growing up. And a lot of people that I knew did. Um, And I was... uh, a big kid early. I was athletic. Um, I was smart. I was able to talk. Um, what's weird is I had a stutter and so maybe that disarmed people, but, um, I, I didn't get bullied. Like I remember the one time I got bullied and it was for your stutter. Yeah, it was actually for my stutter and and it was in high school and it was one instance and it was from someone who I knew like he was upset cause he was on JV basketball and I was on varsity and it wasn't a big deal, but, like I didn't get bullied. I was intuitively a leader. Um, the teachers liked me and pe- the people closest to me, I could feel that there was this sense of resentment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as, uh, you know, successes began to pile up and accolades and um, just some family dynamic stuff, I felt it as a teenager. And now even as an adult um, and I'm feeling it from the people closest in my familial a constellation. And so there's a personal wound there that started in childhood. But then, you know, once I got aware enough to start to look out at the world and that my dharma is really to, you know, understand the human psyche. And so I look and I hold space for a lot of people's traumas and just the woe that happens in life. And then with social media, being able to see how many people suffer you know, like half of the world doesn't even have access to clean water or the type of food that we take for granted. And just all those layers. Um, for a long time, what has propelled me to work really hard um, to serve people, it came from a sense of guilt. And in the last couple of years, I've, I've at least consciously, I've alchemized why I work as hard as I do. And it's because I love what I do. But every time I go to ayahuasca, she reminds me that there's a boy inside of me who like the image that brought me to tears in ayahuasca is like, there's like a five-year-old boy who is proud of something that he did and he brings it home and he's confused by the response that he gets from the people closest to him. 
and I cry for that kid. Mm. Yeah. Wow. And in terms of like where you're at now and having the awareness you do have of that, like when it comes up, like how do you, like do you have mm. a, like what's your narrative around it at this point? Yeah, my conscious adaptation that I have now is whenever that guilt arises, it instinctually switches over to immense gratitude that brings me to tears. And I'm often in my car looking at the moon or a sunset or whatever. And, you know, I'll just, I'll cry one or two tears, you know, cause like the, the song's perfect. My belly is full. I feel healthy. I'm in a beautiful car. I'm, I feel so supported by the community around me. And when I feel that sense of guilt, I instantly flip it to like, I know that my God sees me and knows that I'm here to serve for the rest of my life and that I'm doing my best. And so it switches over to gratitude, but the root is like, and I think that this is something that might be really good for people to bring awareness to is like, healing is not about removing some part of your past. You know, healing is like, this is a flavor of the instrument that I am, period. And can I make beauty from it? And so very likely there will always be a little boy inside of me who um, is crying because he's bringing home his crayon drawing to his family and the reception that he gets is like, he can feel it in his bones that he doesn't understand the emotion, but the emotion he's receiving is not good. Mm-hmm. And that's a flavor of whatever the thing is that I am. And um, I see that boy, I can hold that boy, but I don't know if it will ever go away. Hmm. Yeah. I think it's like holding that compassion and gratitude. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of like people that I listen to or read their content, you have a very unique ability to articulate the human experience into words um, a lot of things, specifically your, you know, these plant medicine journeys, which I don't know how you can bring words to, but we do our best. Right. Yeah. And, uh, have you always had that skill as a kid? So what's fascinating, man, is, uh, and it's such a beautiful representation of like where our biggest wound was in childhood. If we show up to, it becomes our greatest medicine. I had a crippling stutter for most mm. of my childhood. Uh, when I was young, my sister would have to translate what I was saying so my mom could understand what it was. And uh, I saw speech pathologists or speech therapists all through elementary school. And um, my entire life, even now, like <clears throat> I was articulating this to some friends and they were like, whoa, what the fuck? So whenever I talk, I can feel the next three or four or five words that are coming. And um, I can feel which word I'm likely to stutter on. And then I start to think of a replacement word so I don't have to say that word. And it's almost like a guitar hero type thing. And so my entire life, there's been this part of my consciousness that is trying to think of other ways to say whatever it is that I'm trying to say to talk around a stutter. And uh, I think that that has gifted me with this like huge uh, capacity to find the right word at the right time. And it wasn't until I started podcasting where I learned how to not stutter. Um, but I still can feel that I have it in me. But basically when I started podcasting, you know, for the first year I wasn't making any money. So I had to edit all my own podcasts and I would have to listen to myself and I, you know, maybe 50 or 60 episodes, each one, at least an hour. And I could feel, oh, it's, it's almost like I have different gears. And if I'm in the fourth gear, I'm almost guaranteed to stutter. But if I can just shift the gear down and make the speed a little bit lower. I don't stutter. And then I started to practice that in the podcasting. And I could feel like when my energy is kind of in my chest, I'm more likely to stutter. When I bring it down into my core, I'm less likely to stutter. 
And what's incredible, man, is uh, even the most severe stutter, if you ask that person to sing, their stutter evaporates. So wow. there's something about the musical quality of speaking that just bypasses the stutter. And so now the way that I normally talk, it's slower. It's almost kind of hypnotic and not even on purpose. And it kind of has a musical quality to it because that is that allowed me to move out of the stuttering. And now the thing that I get the compliment on the most, more than anything, is my voice and is the way that I talk. And it's wild that uh, like <clears throat> before Aubrey made me a coach, I never wanted to be a coach. I never wanted to be the person in front of other people because I was afraid of stuttering. Hmm. And now it's the thing that I fucking do as my occupation and it's wild. That is why I would have never had guessed uh, that you had a stutter. It's definitely not noticeable, but I think if anything, it, it it's almost like I have more admiration for you considering <laughs> like you're, like you said, your wound has become your greatest gift. Um, and also so. I've read voraciously my entire life. Well, not my entire life. So I read a lot as a kid and then puberty hit. And the moment puberty hit, I was like, fuck books is about basketball and girls. And then it wasn't until I tore my rotator cuff when I was a junior in high school and my basketball dreams slowly started to die that then I picked up reading again. And, you know, I have probably read maybe a thousand books, um, at, at least an hour a day, almost every day for the last 10 years. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's evident if anyone listens or reads your, your content, because, uh, you know, I, I consider myself someone who reads more than the average person, <laughs> but I'm like, dude, you're just on another level. Um, but it's, it's fascinating. And did you have that kind of inkling of like always wanting to know more? And it's like, it seems like you have a never ending curiosity. Yeah, dude. Um, so when I was young, um, it's, it's so weird to really think about what the fuck was going on inside of my seven-year-old self. But for whatever reason, when I was like six or seven, um, I found Greek mythology books at my school library and I was like, whoa. And so I started to read this stuff and thank God for my parents. Like I told them that I was reading Greek mythology and you know, like Greek mythology has like rape and war and killing and like all, all these really mature ideas. And my parents' response was, oh, you should check out Norse mythology. Dad actually has some books in the library. And then my dad brought me like all of his books on Norse mythology. And they let me read that as a kid. And like, I look back on it and that was such a big, such a big uh, part of my development. And um, so it's like, this is really a lie for me right now because I'm currently working on something that is made, that has made me revisit this. But um, I developed a huge ego playing basketball. Like I grew up in a small town and I was the fucking king, you know, like Where'd you grow up? I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin called Toma, like cool. 8,000 people. And then I moved to Texas and uh, the competition got way better. And I was just used to being the fucking king. And um, I got really good, but also got humbled playing against like real athletes down in the South. Um, but like I was being scouted when I was a freshman and uh, my ego was like, I was like, I'm going to be in the NBA. And then when I tore my rotator cuff um, that day, when I came home, my mom was actually taking a online philosophy class. And she told me one of the stories that they had to read. And it was Plato's allegory of the cave. And um, it blew my mind. And I like shifted the drive to be the best at basketball because I was dead over to like, I'm going to be the greatest philosopher ever. Like that's how egotistical and also naive I was. And so then when I went to college, um, I had never had to study and I got B's. Like I, I never had to look at a book or anything. And then once I got to college, I failed all my classes my first semester. Um, or my first year, I think maybe I passed one class. 
my GPA at the end of that first year was a 0.7. And I had this epiphany moment at the end of the year because I had started smoking weed and I was watching a Joe Rogan stand-up. I didn't know who Joe Rogan was at the time. And he made this joke about, you know, we all think we're the smart people, but if the electricity goes off, you're going to do exactly what I do. And you're going to sit and you're going to wait. And you'll be like, these fucking idiots can't turn the lights on. But what if all the people who knew how this shit worked died? And it, and it was just us. We would fucking die. And I'm really high. It's like a Friday night. I haven't gone to class in weeks. And I have this epiphany moment where I realized I do not know how to do anything useful. And I am incompetent to the point where I would fucking die if the people who knew how stuff worked died. And then literally the next day, like my whole life changed. And I, it started from a sense of fear. It wasn't me being curious. It was me being terrified. And I just started reading everything I could. And then I got really deep into philosophy. Then I was like, no one knows anything. I don't know anything. And um, that slowly was tempered by exploring psychedelics in college. And then now I'm at this place where it's like, I'm just fascinated, man. Like Mm -hmm. the mystery is infinite. Like there's that Steve Jobs quote, no one who has built any of this is fundamentally smarter than you. Like the whole world is built by people like you. And so you have permission to motherfucking change the world if you want to. And I want to try to change the world. Mm. And you talked about how storytelling is your sword. That's your, mm. your vehicle. When did you realize that was like your thing that you felt called or your dharma, as you would put it? Hmm. So it started with uh, when I was in college, um, maybe a senior when I was about to graduate, uh, I did some mushrooms and I went on a hike and I got to the top of how this all, hill. How all great rel- revelations. Begin. <laughs> uh, and I like had this realization where it's like all of philosophy and all of psychology to the point that I understood at that point in my development. It's all about the stories we tell. Like every philosopher is essentially just telling a different story. And most psychology, at least the psychology that I was aware of at that point, because I had a huge revolution of my understanding of psychology last year from studying trauma. But before that, I was like, it's all stories. And so I at first approached like stories like a philosopher or a scientist. And I think it was like maybe... I don't know when the moment started, but maybe two or three years ago, I was like, oh, I can also approach stories as an artist. I can tell stories. And really, man, I think it connected for me last year when I wrote my article on trauma, where this thing happened inside of me where it was like, you're allowed to retell myths in your own way. And so I retold the Medusa myth in a way that I felt more accurately represented what trauma actually is. So really, I think it started last year when I mm-hmm. approached it as a creative or as an artist and gave myself permission. You can tell stories. And honestly, man, this is a great question because I've never connected to this until now. Um, it, it happened last year when I heard Michael Mead on Russell Brand's podcast. Uh, he's kind of like a mythologist and a storyteller. And he was basically explaining that like his entire life's work, what he does is he basically does these videos where he has an audience and he has a drum and he just starts playing the drum and he will retell whatever myth feels right in whatever way feels right to the crowd. And that just gave me permission. I was like, oh, fuck, I can do this. And the revolution or the revelation that I was talking about with trauma is one... I really got deep into studying trauma last year. And what I realized was stories are great, but if your animal is traumatized, me trying to change your story is not going to help. You, you have to help the animal feel safe. And so for 10 years, my big thing was you just have to change your stories, just change your stories. And that's not wrong. 
But if your animal is traumatized, it doesn't matter what motherfucking story you tell, you feel like you're about to be eaten and you have to start with the body. And so that's really opened me up to looking into and exploring like somatic base therapies that can help people get to a baseline of safety. And then you can work on the stories. Mm, I love that. And I started reading your article on trauma. I didn't realize how long it is and we'll link it in the show notes. It is an in-depth look for sure. And one of the things I found interesting while reading it, and it made me kind of think back, I started, I dropped out of school when I was 18, you know, got into writing and entrepreneurship pretty, you know, especially with the rise of Gary Vee. This was back. I remember Gary, <laughs> I remember I'm like, who is this dude? He had like 50,000 followers. And yeah. I was like, tell me like, you know, all these, all these things. And as I progressed on my journey, uh, similar, like I think the mindset and story is so important but I've also realized the body like, uh, and especially I live in Encinitas, which is like a kind of a Mecca for yoga and a lot of these like somatic type um, therapies and modalities. And without, they're both like equally important in terms of a healing, but B being able to move forward from these events and experiences that happen. Absolutely. There's, this is a whole side note that would take hours to explain, but um, <laughs> I'm working slowly on my first book. And um, one of the things that I want to offer is inst- I want to offer a different model that can replace the diagnostic and statistic manual for mental disorders. And I'm working on creating a medicine wheel. And the medicine wheel has like four cardinal directions. And uh, you know, one of them is stories. And then one of them is the body. Uh, one of them is community. And the last one is transcendence. Mm-hmm. And these feel like the four core things that humans need in order to thrive in such a way where they don't have mental disease and they don't have chronic physical disease. And, um, I like the idea of the medicine wheel because it doesn't place a hierarchy on anything. Mm -hmm. It's like a diagnostic tool. Like where are you right now in these four directions and where can you lean into to heal as opposed to the fucking bullshit that we have been given for the last 60 or 70 years in the diagnostic and statistic manual. And there's a whole history that I'm going to cover in the book about how, uh, that book is not about healing. That book is about creating patients for pharmaceutical companies and for psychiatrists. And I don't want to antagonize psychiatrists or the people that work at pharmaceutical companies because many of them, most of them, are genuine people genuinely trying to help who are working from a model that they had to spend a lot of money learning and a lot of time acquiring and it's the sunk cost fallacy, but like, this is the model they've been given and um, it's not great. Mm. Yeah. I remember you talked about some of what you just discussed in the article and it also made me think of like Gabor Mate's work where, yeah. you know, like diving beneath the surface to like, okay, how did this actually manifest? Um, and speaking of Gabor Mate, I don't know where I heard you say this, but you referenced one of his quotes. I wrote it down here. It's, the problems, and he actually got this from the Palace of Desire, but it's the problem is not that the truth is harsh, but that liberation from ignorance is as painful as being born. Mm-hmm. I heard you give insight into this, and it was so fascinating to hear your breakdown of this. Um, I kind of just want to give you the floor and what that quote means to you and what he means by that. Yeah. So the first thing is, what's the, where did you say he got it from? The Palace of Desire. What's that? Is that a book? It's a book. Yeah. I, I can't, I couldn't pronounce the author's name. So I just, uh, Interesting. but it's the palace of desire. Yeah. So the context that I shared that quote in it's on my, uh, Soltara ayahuasca trip report, but, um, it was in regards to a really painful relationship that I've gone through and the pain of the relationship fundamentally came down to, uh, slowly seeing the truth of the situation and, for me at least, and for everyone in a relationship, when you start a relationship, you start telling a story about how it could be, but that's not what it is. And a part of the relationship is to slowly learn the truth of what it is and who they are 
and who you are. And when we learn a truth that is in conflict with the story that we've told about how we want it to be, a death begins. And I truly believe that our stories about the future, about what we want, they're almost like psychic appendages. And I think something like depression or even psychosis on some level is when a truth occurs in your life that is so big that it fundamentally kills a story that you had. And you have to grieve the death of the story. And it's a psychological wound, like an actual wound. And um, the only way through is to be killed by it psychologically and to be reborn. And to be reborn psychologically in such a way where you can incorporate the truth of what is and then tell a new story about what can be. Mm. Yeah. And it's interesting you talk about that grieving period because in my experience of like changing and I had a bit of a, my own Phoenix rising, I feel still experiencing it where my life was flipped on its head um, October 17th last year overnight with Lyme disease and exactly wow. And, and why I think that quote and hearing you explain it um, was so fascinating. I was running a company, um, big ego, right? Dropped out of school, like started this successful company. We had like 30 people in the company and I was stressed out. And of course, there's all these things I couldn't see until hindsight. Mm -hmm. But the ego death or the death of the story I told myself of I'm this guy who's like, and who am I? The question of who am I without being this person of value in the workforce Right. Was a truth that fucking hurt to look at. Yep. And I knew that was also part of the gift of this experience. Yeah, man. I think one of the things that is uh, that we haven't been given great tools for in our life is how to grieve. And also when grieving is appropriate. Like what's wild is in the DSM, uh, if you... So in the third version of the DSM, they created what was called the grief exception to depression. And real quick, what's the DSM? So the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual for Mental Disorders. It's the book that most doctors have to use in order to get paid by insurance companies when they treat someone for a mental disorder. Wow. And it's like a 800-page tomb that uh, has all these diagnostics and then there's surveys. And then if you have, you know, five of the 11 symptoms you classify as having whatever the disorder is. And what they found is that when someone is grieving, they have all of the symptoms of depression. And so they created what was called the grief exception. And the grief exception was only allowed if someone close to you had died. And in the DSM-3, you were, you were allotted one year to grieve. And then if you still had those symptoms after that, then they would call it depression. In the fourth version of the DSM, they moved it down to, I believe, three months. And you had three months that if someone close to you died, you could show these symptoms and you would still be shown as grieving. But if it was after that, then it would be depression. In the fifth version, which is the version we're on right now, they moved it down to two weeks. You have two weeks. And um, if you show the symptoms beyond that, then depending on the type of doctor you have, you, you can be diagnosed as being depressed. Now, not only is that fucked up, and we don't even need to get into why that's fucked up because everyone listening can feel why that's fucked up. I believe that we grieve when one of our stories die, that it is akin to someone close to us dying. And if you had a story that, what justifies my existence is that I'm of value to these people and to the community and that I have a certain status and a certain title and I make a certain amount of money. If that's taken away from you, you are dying. Your conception of who and what you are is dying. And why I think the hero's journey as a mythological map for how to be transformed is so powerful is we are all going to go through points in our lives where we have to die to who we believe we are to become more and to become a new version of ourselves. And 
grieving is one of the fundamental ways that you allow yourself to transform. Like what's really interesting about how the brain technically works on one level is if you suppress any emotion, um, you basically dampen all emotions because your brain can't really differentiate between the deep grief and the deep joy. And so when people are grieving or if someone close to you dies or if you if your partner leaves you or if you lose your job or whatever and you don't grieve, everything is dampened until you let yourself grieve. And some people, a lot of people, you can see that they're frozen in time. And really where they are is they're 12, you know, when their parents got divorced or they're 21 when the love of their life left them. Or they're, you know, 30 when their children start to become teenagers and don't love them the way that they loved them when they were kids. And one of the ways that you allow yourself to transform is to grieve. And we haven't really been shown how to grieve, especially men. Men have such a hard time allowing themselves to be vulnerable and to cry. And it's one of the illnesses. And what's interesting, man, is I know a lot of really successful people who create a life where their company basically eats them. And then unconsciously what their psyche has to do to free themselves is they have to, their body has to make them so sick where they cannot run the company anymore. And it forces them out of it. And then they have to go on a quote unquote healing journey where they realized, Oh, wow. Um, I was, I basically lived every waking moment for the last seven years doing things that I didn't want to do that weren't truly in accord with how I wanted to be. You know, the five-year-old in me to not dream about going to six meetings a day and then worrying about my finances to a thing that makes me money that allows me to buy things that the moment I buy them, I don't feel the joy from them because I'm worried about the next thing. And for whatever reason, I don't understand yet exactly what it is, but what we call Lyme disease is one of the core ones that I've seen personally in super successful people who have companies that have to remove themselves from the company because they won't do it consciously. Yeah. You just like described me <laughs> and uh, you don't even know, you know the full extent. And I'm just sitting here like, Oh shit. Um, and you know, it, you're right. It is a, it's a painful way to learn um, that yeah. lesson. But you know, now as I'm coming out the other side, it's, you know, in many ways it's a gift. And I think at least in my experience that, that whole, like I could see that I was running and operating from a pattern, which a, I don't know where the pattern came from, but I felt it pretty much my whole life. I used to get uh, actually anxiety attacks when I was young, uh, competitive soccer, like really young. And then the coach quickly realized, don't yell at Jake. So I was like the only kid he wouldn't yell at. Cause he'd like, if you yell at me, I'll fuck up. I put enough pressure on myself. Um, but it's interesting to see, you know, I never had the, the verbal term of anxiety. Didn't know what that was until I was 18. Um, but to see how that same thing and then crept up into adulthood, dropping out of college, starting this company, but really there was this deep pattern of don't fuck up yeah. and you need to like prove yourself. And, you know, like you said, the structure of what you just shared of uh, you seen in a lot of founders is uh, the journey that I've been experiencing. So that's, that's pretty wild. Um, I'm curious to get your perspective on grief because I was reading other like I'd love for you to explain a little bit about grief and how you would either re recommend someone go about it because in my experience one thing that I've learned to talk with people my mom just went through a breakup and they broke up like within the last month and it was only six months but she's like she was like annoyed at herself um because it had only been six months. And, and I'm like, mom, this just happened. It's like, we want to put a timeline. Oh, I should be done by X date. So I was curious, like, what would you advise someone on the grieving process? And if you're open to it, explaining your own process, I know you went through a breakup. If you feel comfortable talking about that, like how yeah. you've used what you've learned through grief for yourself. Yeah, man. Uh, so one of the best books I have currently found on grief is called um, The Smell of Rain on Dust. And I forget the name of the author, but it's like a four and a half hour audio book and the author reads it. And I highly recommend the audio book because you can feel his passion for mm -hmm. grief. Um, fundamentally, 
one of the ways to understand your psyche is you have a storyteller and then you have an animal and the animal is the body and the animal doesn't give a fuck about what it should do or what it, or how it should feel. It feels period. It's the storyteller that really gets in the way of allowing the animal to um, move whatever energy wants to be moved. And studying trauma has really helped me understand grief tremendously. And so when, okay, mammals, uh, especially social mammals, um, when they're, so when like a gazelle is attacked by a lion, the gazelle, if it's in the jaws of the lion, will do what's called the freeze response, which is one of our primal instincts in the face of overwhelming danger. And uh, it makes it look like it's dead, but it also allows it to disassociate from the pain in its body temporarily because that's adaptive. And if the lion loses interest or gets distracted for a moment, the gazelle can pop out of that, run away. And then when it's safe, it starts to have a seizure. It, it looks like it's having a seizure, but really what it's doing is it's discharging, it's processing, it's digesting the incredibly potent energy that just moved through its body. Humans, when we go through something that causes grief, which is essentially like a part of us just got attacked by a lion, like to our animal body, something just came and tried to kill us. Because we're symbolic animals, we can experience biologically a tiger attack when there's no tiger. Like you could get a text that has nine words, but those nine words represent the death of your company or the death of your relationship. That's a motherfucking tiger to your body. And your body will respond like it's a tiger. And Humans have this great ability to get in the way of the discharging of the emotion because we're uncomfortable feeling whatever it is. Like one of the great lies or non-adaptive stories our culture has given us is you shouldn't feel bad. You shouldn't feel negative. You shouldn't feel sad. And if you do, it's because you're a broken machine. And if you just buy the right chemicals from us, we'll take care of you. And by the way, if you start taking these chemicals, you probably have to take them the rest of your lives. And then you will have to take other chemicals to deal with the side effects of these chemicals. But trust us, it's working. As opposed to having a single friend come to you and look you in the eye and feel the fact that there's a child inside of you screaming and they just hold space for you and maybe they start to cry first. And maybe you can feel in your body that you want to cry. And you're like, no. Like every single one of us knows what it feels like to want to cry and then to stop it. No animal does that but us. I mean, we're the only animals that cry, which is really interesting. But no animal stops that discharge but us. And... It essentially is whatever tool or practice that you can do that allows you to feel safe in your body. And then you trust that when the tears start to come or the screaming starts to come or the shaking starts to come or the curling up in the fetal position and moaning starts to come, that you just let it, just let it. And the thing about grief is that it comes in waves too. Like it's not like, okay, I'm going to set a time for Tuesday at 8 p.m. and I'm going to grieve for an hour and then I'm fucking done. Definitely no. never done that before. Yeah, <laughs> that it comes in waves. And like for me uh, with this relationship, um, when I feel it come up that my body wants to cry, I let myself cry. I've had quite a few cries in the last year that were the deepest cries I can ever remember as a conscious being. I'm sure I cry like that as a baby, but um, I feel like I've been able to move past the intense emotions by allowing them to come through fully. And this is the gift of psychedelics too. Like psychedelics is not for everyone and it's something to do responsibly with people who truly understand how to hold that space. But the gift that I've seen hundreds of times on psychedelics is someone 
will take five grams of mushrooms or they'll go do ayahuasca or whatever it is. And then something comes up from seven years ago or nine years ago, or maybe a year ago, and they start crying and crying almost to the point where they're hyperventilating. And then after that, for the next six months, they look like a completely different person. They don't respond um, to the same triggers that they used to have. Maybe they just stopped drinking and they don't even know why they stopped drinking. But in hindsight, what it was is they allowed this old part of them that just needed to be seen and needed to feel safe to express its truth. And it did. And then there's just this releasing of tension in the body that allows us to show up to the world a little bit more beautifully. There are some specific techniques in that book and there's plenty of books written. Like if, you, if you just Google uh, best books on grief and you just read one, fundamentally what it comes down to is when you feel an emotion come up, have the practice where you can go to a safe place and you can allow yourself to feel the thing fully and then let the animal do what the animal does because mm. it knows how to. Like that's the big insight of trauma research is you know how to heal trauma. Your, your animal knows how to heal trauma. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, it's about allowing the storyteller to bring the animal to a safe place and then to get out of the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. In the article you linked, there's the, that great video showing the polar bear as well as um, I think it was a gazelle. And what's funny, one of the, I mean, I've gone every type of health, not every, but I've gone down the journey of health because when you are in pain and doctors can't help you, you are open to anything and everything. And one of the things it was trauma, it was a trauma release therapy or trauma release exercise where you actually like shake voluntarily to try and basically trigger your body to involuntarily shake, Um, which I didn't personally have any really like profound experience doing, but it was, it opened my eyes to, oh, wow, there's an animalistic, as you would put it, or like a, a part of ourself that knows how to do this. If I can just get out of my own way, um, you know, logically. So one of the kind of segueing is I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey, getting into on it and getting connected with Aubrey yeah. and like, you know, because you're in a pretty uh, special place and yeah. Uh, yeah, I would just love to hear a little bit about like where you were and how that came maybe with a Chipotle burrito or two uh, oh, yeah. involved along the way. Yeah, man. So um, when I was a, uh, that summer in between my first year of college where I basically dropped out of all my classes and my second year, um, I listened to my first podcast ever. And the first first podcast I ever heard was Joe Rogan and Aubrey Marcus episode 127 of the Joe Rogan experience. And it was Aubrey sharing his ayahuasca experience. I'd never heard what ayahuasca was. I didn't, I mean, I kind of heard of psychedelics, but I didn't really know what they were. Um, and that sent me down a fucking rabbit hole where I listened to like every Joe Rogan and Duncan Trussell podcast ever recorded in the span of like three days. I just listened to it all the time. Cause I was actually on a road trip that was 36 hours long. And I just, li- the entire road trip, I just listened to them and then I started doing psychedelics and then, uh, I graduated and I was at Chipotle uh, wrapping burritos for $8 an hour, just fucking balling out with my fancy degree, not understanding how the world worked. And I'd started listening to Aubrey's podcast on and off. And I remember the day where uh, I had smoked some weed and I went on a walk and I was looking at the moon and I told the moon, I was like, I want to help Aubrey spread his philosophy. Cause the thing that I could feel is I could feel like I truly respected how he showed up as a man and I could feel that my scientific and philosophical rigor could help him more clearly articulate what he was trying to say. And I gave that offering to the moon. I forgot about it. Um, I eventually got a job at an insurance company where I worked as a call center manager remotely. And I finessed the fuck out of that job. Uh, I worked eight hours a day, but it was on my computer and on my other computer was my website and my podcast and my books. And I was trying to build all of that up. And I did the bare minimum at this job. God bless them. And after like a year and a half of me just completely finessing them while I started my um, blog and I was really cultivating that, 
I got fired and I'd never been fired before. I'd never like, uh, I had never like done something wrong where I felt like I was like reprimanded by adults and it was really, uh, traumatizing. Mm -hmm. The day I got home from being fired, I opened up Facebook and the first thing I saw was an ad for an online course called go for your win that was being ran by Aubrey Marcus. And up until that point in my life, I'd never bought anything online because my ego was like, I'm not going to fucking pay someone to tell me what to do with my life. I'm going to figure it out on my own, you know, because I'm like Leonardo da Vinci. I'm like Nietzsche. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a genius on my own. Um, but I had saved up a lot of money um, and I was like, fuck it, you know, I'll try. So I joined that group. I was super active in the Facebook group. Anytime anyone asked anything, I just like... I had never had peers who wanted to know all the shit that I had read. And so I was so excited to just like put it out there. And after 12 weeks, uh, he did a graduation in Austin and I lived an hour away from Austin at the time. So I went and we were all there in person and he came up to me in person and he was like, Eric, thank you for like how you've shown up in the group. And I was like, I'm getting a job and on it. Like that was the first thing that I fucking thought. And so I applied to on it the day after to be a research writer for his first book. And um, I had all these synchronicities, like I had fucking dreams and all these like signs of like, Oh my God, I'm going to get this job. And so I moved to Austin before I heard back and I got this place and I eventually got an email back from the uh, hiring manager. And she said, you know, I, I hope you'll apply in the future, but um, we won't let somebody else. And I was fucking crushed because my intuition was so fucking clear, like more clear than it's ever been about what to do in my life. And so for two or three days, I just got drunk. I was like, I didn't know what to do. And then I woke up on the third day and I was like, I have to do this on my own. And that's the day that I started my podcast. And so wow. for a year, I was unemployed. I worked on my podcast. Um, I kind of became a habit change coach, but I didn't know how to charge enough money for really what I was doing. But I helped people like quit smoking and like quit biting their nails and shit. And by the end of that year, uh, my mom had enough grace to ask me if I wanted to stay for Thanksgiving and Christmas, but it's because she knew that I was fucking broke. And so I basically You're moved over uh, having top ramen for dinner every night, <laughs> dude, man, for months, it was steamed vegetables and beans. And then I would splurge on Friday and I would get Chipotle like oh. that. I, I was fucking really going to treat yourself grinding. Um, so I'm at my mom's house. Uh, I have maybe $800 to my name and uh, I ended up eating 180 milligrams of THC on accident, which is, um, I didn't know at the time, but 10 milligrams of an edible roughly equates to smoking like a spliff. Jeez. And, uh, because I had done psychedelics, I had always, I had become really sensitive to weed. And so it would just take one hit and I would be good. I had the hardest experience of my life up until that point, And to tell that whole story is beyond the time that we have, but it, was the hardest thing that I've ever went through. And once I was sober the next day, I was like fearless. I was like, I'm just going to do like all the things that I've been afraid to do that I've been justifying not doing. I'm going to fucking do them. So like the very next day I went on this date with this girl on Tinder and it ended up being an amazing short relationship that was super passionate. And then two days after that, I was like, fuck it. I'm going to apply to on it again. So I go on the job site and the only job opening they have is what's called a community manager. And I didn't know what the fuck that meant, but it was like the lowest wrong job at, at on it. And I applied for it. And then I go and I check the Facebook group and I see that the hiring manager had just posted the job listing in the go for your win Facebook group. And so I comment, I'm the first person to comment on it. I'm like, I just applied to this, but I wish luck to everyone else who's going to apply. And then I go to bed. I woke up the next day, I go and I check that status and like 18 people had commented on my comment saying, Eric should get the job. Eric should get the wow. job. Eric should get the job. And I knew I was like, Oh, this is it. And so I get a call the next like two or three days later. Um, I fly back to Austin the next day. I go to an interview like two days later, I'm sleeping on a friend's couch cause I don't have a place. I have no money. And I have an interview with Aubrey. He tells me I get the job. 
and uh, in the inter- so you interview and then he tells you after the interview you got the job no when i was in the interview he was like it's yours you know like yeah because i figured you know if you had been so if you knew who you were and you were so engaged it was probably an automatic yes for him right right um and so when i get to on it i am on fire i have no money this is the thing that i've been trying to do for a long time and my job for the first like five or six months was just answering like customer service emails for Aubrey's personal website. And I'm just toiling away. Uh, I'm the first person to work every day. I'm the last person there every day. I'm there every motherfucking weekend. And slowly the people around my desk were like the closest friends to Aubrey because Aubrey was busy as fuck. I don't like, he didn't really see me. Mm -hmm. Um, But all of his friends started to be like, dude, you need to go talk to that dude. Like he's interpreting dreams. He's sharing myths. He's talking about Carl Jung and shit. Like you need to go talk to him. And uh, he eventually like came up to me one day and he was like, Hey, you're smart. And I looked up at him and I was like, thank you. He's like, no, I've been reading your responses to these emails. Like, uh, do you want to come on the podcast? And I, and I was like, what? And so I go on the podcast and the first podcast we do ends up being like one of his most viewed podcasts at the time. Get out. And then shit just kind of escalated from there. And then at the end of that year, he was like, I'm going to start a mastermind and I want you to be one of the coaches. And I was terrified again. I I was like, uh, like, what am I going to tell the people who are successful enough to be able to join your mastermind? But said, yes, showed up. And now full circle, I'm now the research writer for his second book. That's and to get out. Dude. I know, man. Yeah. Man, and so full, full circle. Yeah. There's so many things I love about that story. One, and something I, I think I self-identify is like, I mean, no, I'm on my path. I've been podcasting for since 2019. Uh, I also feel like a storyteller and I'm not sure how this journey is going to go, but all I know is like, People always ask me, like, what's the vision for the podcast? I'm like, yeah, do I want to monetize it? Absolutely. Do I want to be able to get bigger guests? Absolutely. It's the same shit I'm doing right now. Yeah. So I, in a way, I'm like just grateful. But it's like hearing your story is like, okay, cool. Just like stick to the craft. You love this. It will take care of itself. The second thing, which you said made me think, and I can relate to it as well, is like you went through some, you know, in your words, the most challenging experience of your life up until that point the beauty and maybe you don't and anyone listening, you don't have to do a psychedelic journey to get to that, but going through something harder or taking up a hard challenge, you have nothing to fucking lose because you're like, right. wait, you know, it's like the, this is water to quote David Wallace. Like we're in this thing. And so you kind of had maybe an understanding of your mortality. I'm not sure what it is, but you had that, you know, monkey off your back saying like, this is now. And then the third is, uh, yeah, the, the persistence and the knowingness and showing up and, uh, you know, now it's almost just seems like this. It, it's just, it's wild to hear that story and to see what you're up to now. And kind of like, that was like maybe this catalyst for this just launch. Yeah. Event. Yeah. The one thing I didn't offer, that's the most important thing of this whole story is um, since my Chipotle days, every day, almost every day for the last nine years, I have the first one to three hours of the day. I am researching or writing or studying what I'm in love with, which is psychology or mythology. So like I was honing the blade every fucking day, every day, even when I was at on it, like I would get to work two hours early and I would work on what I'm in love with. And then I would give myself to the job and I honed the blade for nine years. And then I was given the opportunity and it fucking, fucking worked yeah i love that and thank you for including that because i think that is a super important note yeah. is that you know it just so happened that the opportunity prevented itself but you had done the work to be ready for that yeah. opportunity what is um you know i know i'm sure you're like very close with aubrey now like what's the biggest thing you've learned from him in terms mm-hmm. of just i i mean no just period what's the biggest thing you've learned from him it could be anything man a lot um Probably the thing is um, nothing that he taught me directly, but taught me by his being. So I grew up 
with parents that essentially had beliefs that rich people equal evil, period. And so I had stories about money. And Aubrey, through his being, has shown me you can be a fucking poet and a millionaire. You can be a good man and have more money than you could possibly need. And just to feel, and essentially what that equates to is you can be powerful and a good man. And that is something that um, I never saw an example of someone with a lot of power who was also a good person until I met him. Mm. And so it gives me permission. I love that. And, and that's what I was actually wanting. I didn't want like a, a tip, but it's like you said it from his beingness, which yeah. I think you only can learn that from being around someone and seeing the indirect things that they're doing on a daily basis. Um, there's so many things I want to, like I could talk to you for hours. I want to be conscious of your time. Um, yeah, but there I'm is going to go in a little bit. Okay, perfect. So where, where can people connect with you online if they want to learn more about you and, and read your content and listen to the podcast? It felt like you had one more dope question. So let's get into that. And then oh, that. it's, it's so, okay. Answer to the extent it's kind of a, a tangent. I just want to let cool. you know. So on your podcast with ayahuasca, you talked about experiencing like one of the darkest parts of the human experience, particularly for men, which is this part of all men. And like, I'm almost like nervous how to word it, but I think it's yeah. a really important um, yeah. context, which is there is a dark fucking evil that lives in all of us. It's and, the woman eater. Yes, the woman eater. That's the words you used. Why I think this really resonated with me and especially... I live in a community. There's a lot of like, you know, spiritual people, if you will. Um, but like we have dark parts of us. And I think yeah. the something that I'm working on myself is I actually feel liberated acknowledging some of these dark parts of myself, yep. not that I would act on them. Right. But at the same time, it's also, and in my last uh, or my first ever ayahuasca journey, which I've shared with the listeners is like, I was scared to look at some stuff. Yep. Um, specifically the lime related. Like I wanted to, mm. I was like, Oh, I'm, I've been in so much pain. I'm going to ask this thing. Like, how did the lime, like what part of me wants this here? Like I couldn't ask it. I was fucking scared. Yeah. So it's kind of a dual part question. First, how did you look at this, the darkest parts that were shown to you without getting caught in the analytical of like, yeah. And then the second part is your thoughts on embracing <laughs> um, the darkness that is in the human yeah. condition. Yeah, so one of my favorite quotes of all time is from the King Arthur myth. And uh, it's when he throws Excalibur into the lake because he doesn't want the responsibility of being the king of England. <clears throat> and the lady of the lake, which is a spirit, which is a symbol of his soul, goes down to the bottom of the lake, grabs Excalibur, brings it back, puts it in his hand and says, the difference between a man and a king is that a king does not look away. And so one of my biggest like ethos, like one of my biggest, how I want to be in the world is I want to be someone who does not look away. And so when I'm in a psychedelic experience, it's not even a choice, man. It's if it is arising, I look period. And it's also of, it's also due to my understanding that I know that the fundamental aspect of what each of us are is awareness first. And then there's everything that awareness is aware of, but awareness is invincible. Like as long as you are breathing, you can hold whatever arises. As long as you don't respond to it, you can bear witness. And so that feels like a superpower that I have in the psychedelic space. And, you know, I'm going to knock on wood because at any point psychedelics can be like, Oh bitch, you think you fucking can hold this? But so far I, I look, mm -hmm. And so it arose. And so I looked, um, my commentary on it is this is something that ayahuasca clearly wants me to be talking about for a while. And so it's going to come up in a lot of conversations that I'm going to have, but fundamentally we are in a culture where all of us from the moment we are conscious have been taught through some type of way, uh, fundamentally that the feminine is not equal to the masculine. Like that's a part of our culture. And it's because the masculine on some level 
the immature masculine is terrified of the divine feminine or the full expression of the feminine. And, you know, we are the byproducts of how Christianity has unfolded. Like if you are in, if you are from the Western culture, you have those roots in you. And a large part of that history is a vicious suppression of the feminine. And even on a biological level, um, it's kind of a tangent, but women fundamentally are the selectors of who is allowed to reproduce and their selection criteria, which is all unconscious, uh, is harsh because I, I believe the way the ratio works is that in a tribal society, something like 20% of the men will not even get the opportunity to be able to reproduce. And there's a lot of technical reasons and I, I can go on a whole spiel about it, but it's one of the foundations of evolutionary psychology. And so there's this part of the male psyche that's like, fuck women. I hate women. And they want to do violence to women. And it's in all of us. And um, men, you're saying? I mean, it's in women too. Mm-hmm. Like you can, yeah, it's in okay, all gotcha. of us. But the, what ayahuasca showed me was the amount that every woman that I know has experienced this wounding energy in different degrees, every one of them. And it, it had me look at like all the closest women in my life. And it showed me how when I am unconscious and thankfully it hasn't happened in a while, but for sure when I was a teenager, the way that I would have sex was transmitting that energy, the way that I related to women because I was afraid of women, but I still wanted to be with women transmitted that energy there are so many men that i know who because they've been hurt either by their mother or by partners in the past there's a part of them that hates women Mm. but there's also a part of them that loves women and you get a lot of trauma from that type of orientation and fundamentally it feels like the truth is man i don't know Um, but I know that I'm going to continue to talk about this and I will find the gems as it comes out. But really where I'm at right now is this energy is here. It's a huge part of our culture. It's affected probably every man and every woman who is even five in our culture. Right. And, you know, how can I be where I don't put that energy into anyone unconsciously and um what type of conversations can i have or things can i offer that can reduce the amount that that energy is unconsciously expressed towards others because also one of the heavy things that she showed me is this energy can be exchanged consciously for deep experiences of bliss and pleasure but almost everyone who says that they're doing that are not doing that but that is also a part of this paradox is, um, you know, one of the things I've shared with the men's group is like to overreact to this energy is to be a, a limp man, like a psychologically, energetically limp man. And that, that's not attractive to the feminine and it's not respected by other men. So the full overreaction in the other direction is not the way the way it's expressed unconsciously is I think it's the source of most of the sexual violence and exploitation that happens in our culture. Wow. Wow. And for anyone listening, I highly recommend checking out Eric's podcast on his um, ayahuasca trip report, which will be linked because I thought you did a really um, big explanation there. And dude, just thank you for speaking up about it. It literally, I talked with my roommate about it in the sauna for like an hour yesterday (laughs) because it, for me, it was, you had the audacity, like you said, in the vulnerability to look at that. And sometimes I'm scared to look. So I'm like, oh, if I look, does that mean I am this or I do this thing? But it just kind of sparked this whole realization for myself to be like, you know, having the audacity and courage to look. And that doesn't mean, if, if anything, it doesn't mean you're avoiding it, but you're actually can be a, a conscious and yeah. be proactive in being a solution to whatever that may be. 
So yeah, and what what comes up when I hear that is the thing that gives me strength to not look away is I know I'm going to be a father, and I I have to look at this for my children, especially my daughter. Like I have to be able to look at this unflinchingly so that I can be there with her because she's going to have to navigate it period. Mm. <laughs> Eric Gotzi, I could talk to you for hours on end <laughs> um, if time and your schedule is permitted. Um, but before we, we check out here, where can people find you and connect with you online? Oh uh, yeah. My website is my name, Eric You can get on my newsletter there. I have a journaling course you can check out and my Instagram also my name. Uh, you can check out my link tree in the bio for all the other things and my podcast, the myths that make us sweet. And that will all be linked here. Eric, thank you for your time, man. Like genuinely you are a breath of fresh air. You have a very unique approach and way you articulate, like I said, in the beginning, the human experience. And I've definitely benefited from reading and listening to what you put out. So appreciate your time, man. Brother. Thank you.